Okay, so a couple of things. One, we're moving release day back to Monday again for the spring and summer. Two, this episode is crazy long, but it's worth it. And three, I see the F word again, sorry. is a thousand tiny robots what what is that uh some quote from some italian philosopher about how i was reading daniel dennett again mm, and he this one does. he quotes uh this guy i forget his name but basically says we have a soul it's just made up of a bunch of tiny robots mm. yeah which is actually a million little gods sort of dovetails mm-hmm. nicely with that just the the word um this is A Million Little Gods. I'm Ben Federson. And I'm Aaron Gowan. Yeah. And this is this is the big episode. This is the, the one that every philosophy podcast looks forward to, or at least I always look forward to in every philosophy podcast. This is the one about Kant. This is the one. This is the one about Kant. This is the Kantisode. <laughs> the Kantisode. Right. So first for any the of you. Contularity. <laughs> Anyone who's ever read the name Kant has had a brief chuckle and then wondered, how do you pronounce that? And it's Kant. Like, think Mm -hmm. hard C-A-H-N-T, Kant. (laughs) Um, So, what does Kant have to do with our topic? I mean, what doesn't Kant have to do with anything? That's a good point. He doesn't have nothing to do with anything. That's right. Another way of saying that that has fewer negatives is that um, you just can't get enough Kant. <laughs> we were gonna we were gonna take the high road, as I recall. <sighs> okay, go ahead. The one interesting thing that I discovered when I moved to Germany is that. People here, at least university students, they do know Kant. They have read selected works in you know high school as teenagers. Yeah, um, it's like reading Emerson for us. Like it's like part of the lit curriculum rather than some kind of special philosophy. You're as likely to encounter Kant in lit as you are Goethe or Schiller. That's true. Um, It probably also doesn't hurt that Kant makes a lot more sense in German. Oh, hell yeah. But then a lot of German philosophy makes a lot more sense in German. Yeah, this is, it's one of the, maybe... Kant, Heidegger, oh my God. Maybe if you studied, uh, if you did, like I did a a BA in philosophy, you probably read German philosophy in English translation, and it's just, it's a pretty brutal slog to try and even make sense of what's going on. And then if you learn German, you suddenly realize... Let's say the rules of the road for expressing yourself in German are quite different than they are in English, and so you have certain expectations that you come to the 
English translation with that just don't work. Um, and that's partly down. I've you know I've found good translations of Kant that really make it transparent to a non-German speaker what's going on. Mm-hmm. So I I mean honestly I would criticize a lot of the translations. A lot of Kant in translation is not very good. Um, that's my um, well one of my my passion project before I before I die is going to be a Kant for normal people. I'm going to rewrite the critique of pure reason in plain English. Mm-hmm. Um, Give it a try at least. Maybe I'll start a Kickstarter for that or something. Yeah. If there's a lot of interest, you can let me know. Yeah, you know, the problem with German in translation, especially philosophy, is that it, a lot of it sounds like this kind of hierophantic. It's almost as A lot of what? what? Hierophantic. Hierophantic? Yeah, yeah. Like, What's that? Uh, I mean, it's not speaking in tongues necessarily, but it's... Um, but it's as if the German philosophy writer is, you know, prophesying or has breathed in the fumes, you know. The oracle. Yeah, like the oracle of Delphi and is now saying something prophetic. Yeah. But so, that effect, although I would, you know, love to read your layman's translation of Kant, yeah. I would hate to deprive anybody of it's kind of like watching a Tarkovsky movie without having the subtitles on and wondering what the fuck is going on. You know, there's a whole aesthetic experience that you're going to, you know, miss out on. I think the problem is that it lends a certain kind of mysticism to the that text. Shouldn't be there, yeah. That's, that, that's... that implies some kind of, uh, you know, revealed wisdom that just isn't there. And yeah. there's plenty to criticize about Kant. Um, the... Maybe we should start with the reason that other people might be talking about Kant in this context, and that is Kant, among many other works, he had a uh, a work somewhat early on in his career called Von der verschiedenen Rassen der Menschen, which is German, obviously, and it means on the assorted races of man, more or less. Um and that's been translated in various ways. But the general thrust is that it's a treatise. It's a piece of writing about the different human races. Why was he writing about this in the first place? That's a good question. We might be tempted to imagine the age of Immanuel Kant as an age of sort of exploration and worldliness. But apparently Kant didn't get out much. He didn't do very much traveling or have a whole lot of sort of worldly experience, but he was a very expansive thinker and reader and interlocutor with many other continental philosophers. And a lot of the issues of the day sort of went across his desk at one point or another, and he had something to say about all of them. And one of the issues of the day was, well, maybe Susan Schell could explain that a little bit more clearly. Well, um, I'm a professor of political theory um, at Boston College. I've been here for many decades, and I've been, uh, most of my work is on um, 18th and 19th century um, European philosophy, and most of my work has been on Kant, though I've also written on Hobbes and Rousseau and Fichte and some policy questions. Um, 
But yeah, I've been, I've been, you could say, obsessed with Kant most of my adult life, <laughs> maybe even before that. My introduction to Kant was actually in a romantic poetry course I took in college. I think my mother was a natural-born Kantian, so in a certain sense, my filial piety is to Kant. But uh, it was a course on um, kind of English romantic poetry, Milton to uh, Wordsworth, uh, in which I got the topic of Kant on the sublime. That that sort of got me hooked, and uh, you know, ever since I've been, I suppose interested in Kant in a holistic way. You would think that famous fellow who, who never never had a girlfriend, never apparently had a boyfriend, and stayed all his life in one place, wouldn't have an exciting life. But I think he had a very intense inner life uh, in which a few overriding deep philosophic or moral or metaphysical questions, depending on how you frame it, shaped his thinking over, over many decades. So for me, the question of race is related to you know, a broad range of other questions in Kant's thought that come up very early and continue to the final years of his productive life. But at the same time, it interests me because it's such a burning contemporary problem sorting out the relationship between the Enlightenment on the one hand and, and all the things we like about it and that some of the darker implications that it, it might seem to have. That's, a, I think, a, a kind of perennially interesting and important topic from a, from a political and, yeah, and, and moral point of view. I've written three books on Kant, one on his sort of the politics of the critique of pure reason, one on all the embodiment of reason about the mind-body problem as it works its way through Kant's thinking from his very earliest days till his final days, and then uh, more recently Kant and the Limits of Autonomy. What, what sorts of issues lead him to formulate the principle of autonomy is the foundational principle of morality as he understands it. And then what 
what new difficulties does that does that pose? And I think the the race issue is related both to the general problem of embodiment in Kant's thought, but also to the ways in which the principle of autonomy and a strict insistence on distinguishing the realm of nature from the realm of freedom, you know, human dignity pegged in our moral capacities, which are for moral reasons necessarily presumed to be equal, it leads, when it comes to applying these things and, and figuring out how it works out on the ground, to some, to some real conundra, and I think, I think Kant's treatment of race is one prime example of the, the thickets that you know, one finds oneself entangled in when one begins to kind of work through the practical implications of some of Kant's theoretical positions. The question of embodiment is going to be important for us, but let's focus on the principle of autonomy for a moment because it's so crucial to Kant's thinking. As Robert Johnson from the University of Missouri and Adam Curitan from the University of Tennessee note in their entry in the Stanford Encyclopedia of Philosophy on Kant's Moral Philosophy, the idea of autonomy is pretty easy to imagine if you just think of how we consider in a liberal society that the laws that bind people are the ones that we decide for ourselves as a group. And that notion is a continuation Kant contends of the primacy of an individual regarding moral questions. For Kant, the moral law is not something floating in the air, but rather something that is discovered in our existential encounterings in the world. As Kant writes in Chapter 34 of The Critique of Practical Reason, erfüllen das Gemüt mit immer neuer und zunehmender Bewunderung und Ehrfurcht, je öfter und anhaltender sich das Nachdenken damit beschäftigt. Der bestirnte Himmel über mir und das moralische Gesetz in mir. Ich sehe sie beide vor mir und verknüpfe sie unmittelbar mit dem Bewusstsein meiner Existenz. That is, two things fill my mind with wonder and awe, the more frequently and persistently I think about them. The starry heavens above me and the moral law within me. I hold them both before me and they are both inextricably linked with the consciousness of my existence. It's a difficult needle Kant wants to thread throughout his life's work. Individuals are bound to rules, but rules in a sense of their own making. Kant is at pains to establish a categorical imperative, an unconditional rule humans as free rational agents are compelled to follow, but are free not to follow. It was important for Kant that he make clear that we are not bound to rules fixed by society or institutions like religion. That would mean we weren't free. The rules come from inside each individual. But one of the rules that individuals inevitably feel self-compelled to follow is that their rules must be so constructed that they are universally applicable to every individual. That is, the moral rules individuals follow are a priori. They're derived from self-evident principles. But they're also, somewhat paradoxically, a posteriori. They are created by individuals based on observed facts and personal experiences. Think of Huckleberry Finn. 
As you'll recall in the story, Huck is an ignorant young provincial boy who early in the novel runs away from his abusive father, a drunk, and from the widow Douglas, an older woman from the town of Hannibal, who has, out of a sense of charity, taken Huck under her wing and wishes to make a civilized young man out of him. By Huck's own description, the widow is kindly and patient and mostly good. She just wants him to learn the rules of decent society, like table manners and the handling of slaves. The widow's sister, Miss Watson, lives with the widow, too, and she and Huck can hardly stand each other. After staging his own death, Huck eventually sets off down the Mississippi River and runs into Jim, Miss Watson's slave, who has also run away. Their friendship grows through several adventures with outlandish characters. But eventually, Jim is captured by a set of swindlers and sold to some people who intend to return him to Miss Watson for a reward. By this point, Huck is racked with guilt for going along with helping a black slave to escape, which the widow had let him know was a deeply immoral act of stealing. So he decides it's high time to set himself right with God and writing a letter to Miss Watson, letting her know where Jim was. Huck tries to tell himself that he feels good not stealing anymore and not committing other crimes and sins. But he realizes that Jim will just be sold down the river once he gets back to Miss Watson. And so Huck undergoes a crisis of conscience. I felt good, Huck says, and all washed clean of sin for the first time I had ever felt so in my life. And I knew what I could pray now. But I didn't do it straight off, but laid the paper down and sat there thinking. Thinking how good it was all this happened so, and how near I come to being lost and going to hell. And went on thinking, and got to thinking over our trip down the river, And I see Jim before me all the time, in the day and in the nighttime, sometimes moonlight, sometimes storms, and we are floating along, talking and singing and laughing. But somehow I couldn't seem to strike no place to harden me against him, but only the other kind. I'd see him standing my watch on top of his instead of calling me so I could go on sleeping. And I see him how glad he was when I come back out of the fog, and when I come to him again in the swamp, up there where the feud was and such like times, and would always call me honey and pet me and do everything you could think of for me, and how good he always was. And at last I was struck the time I saved him by telling the men we had smallpox aboard. And he was so grateful, and said I was the best friend old Jim had in the world, and the only one he's got now, and then I happened to look around and see that paper. It was a close place. I took it up and held it in my hand. I was a-trembling because I'd got to decide forever betwixt two things, and I knowed it. I studied a minute, sort of holding my breath, and then says to myself, All right, then I'll go to hell, and tore it up. It was awful thoughts and awful words, but they was said, and I let them stay said, and never thought no more about reforming. I shoved the whole thing out of my head and said I would take up wickedness again, which was in my line, being brung up to it, and the other warrant. And for a starter, I would go to work and steal Jim out of slavery again. And if I could think up anything worse, I'd do that too, because as long as I was in, I was in for good, and I might as well go the whole hog. That decision was hard won on Huck's part. If moral rules are socially constructed and enforced by social institutions, then Huck acknowledges that he's perfectly aware of what those rules say about what he ought to do. The rules and institutions tell him he's violating a natural law. 
A black person has no place being free. Huck uses a different word than black person, of course. Although he's torn apart with shame and terror, nonetheless, he chooses the supposedly wrong path because his inner lights tell him that is what he ought to do. The story of Huckleberry Finn is a supreme example of the categorical imperative at work. Huck's autonomy wins out against rules that are imposed from the outside, be they social laws or biological or psychologically deterministic laws. He is radically free to choose to bind himself to a new rule, one that comes from inside him. But in light of what is fair and just and good with regard to Jim, one that must be valid for everyone. And yet, if Immanuel Kant could have heard the story of Huckleberry Finn, would he have seen fit to consider Huck's conscientious decision morally good? And what would Kant have said of Jim? Would he have said that Jim was as free from biologically deterministic laws as any other person? That's harder to answer than I wish it were. music you hear is a sign that's wait no this no kai no this is not this what is this this is not the do 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 this is that's the song that we're supposed to be okay all right okay okay um that music you hear is a sign that it's wow Smell like anything? Okay. Um, <clears throat> that music you hear is a sign that. <laughs> ho, 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 huh? Oh. Oh. Okay. Okay. Huh. Huh. Okay. So, <clears throat> the music you hear is a side that. Hold on.
That was bleak. Okay. That music you hear is a sign that it's time for us to ask you for some money. You know you feel guilty for not giving us any money. We offer you services. You enjoy those services. Would you get your hair cut and not pay the dresser? I don't think so. So pay your hairdresser, and if you have any money left over, fork some over to us on PayPal or on our website, amillionlittlegods.com, or consider becoming a donor on Patreon. We'd really appreciate it. <laughs> come on! That's just... Come... You know what? Just forget it. I love you people. I really appreciate you listening to us. I think Ben does too. I know all the students appreciate it. Do whatever you want to do. Just keep listening. We'll keep making it for you. Thanks a bunch. Okay, I'm going to go call my mom. What is cons? concept of race and how is it how would you compare it to what you understand to be a sort of modern colloquial understanding of race where where do they sort of differ okay so i won't presume to 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 define the modern concept of race and i'll assume that it's that people have a vague idea that they that that's that sufficiently overlapping so that i don't have to describe it in any detail i mean i think the big thing that needs to be said is that we, there wasn't a, a science of biology in our sense yet. There was a great deal of intellectual ferment in the 18th century as a lot of very bright people struggled to understand how all kinds of phenomena that seem to be manifest in the world, like chemical reactions, like the, the fact of life, like biological reproduction, didn't seem amenable to the kinds of mechanical explanations which defined respectable science after Newton. And so Kant's, Kant's concept of race is, is one, of, one of the ways in which he tries to grapple with how, you, how to understand life. So race for, for Kant is a concept that he invents, so to speak, in order to account for the phenomenon of hybridization, given a theory about generation, which presumes that species are species are defined by, uh, wherever animals can mate and reproduce other other fertile offspring, and where you have a continuous line of fertile offspring, that constitutes a species. And this is in, in contrast to an older Aristotelian understanding of species as something that you grasp immediately in the look. You know, what defines a dog in the older understanding is a kind of dogness that you just immediately grasp when you see dogs and is, is distinguishes them from, you know, from antelopes and giraffes. This newer definition of species seems to be more scientifically reliable in that it has a, a kind of empirical, empirically testable basis, namely that two animals belong to the same species, well, if they can, if they can breed and produce fertile offspring. And that was basically Buffon's definition of a species. And Kant accepts it, 
But then he notices that if that's all you have in your definition of a species, then there's no saying that a walrus and the dog might not mate and produce a canary, and then the canary and the cat would produce. And in other words, you have no a priori or, or positive reason for believing that there's any any constancy to the actual form or or, or characteristics that that, def- that define a species as such. So Kant adds to this Buffonian definition the idea that a species not only produces fertile offspring among its members, but it also does so according to a certain rule that produces like. And and the the, the like here is not something that we we necessarily grasp intuitively, as Aristotle thought, but it's rather something we presume that there's a common germ that all members of the species are born with that lays out a kind of blueprint when a member of that species mates with another member and produces a, you know, a similar kind of animal. That may sound a little bit like our DNA, but <laughs> in some ways it is and in some ways it isn't. Um, now, what what causes a difficulty now is that there are some characteristics which are necessarily passed along to offspring, which are not universal to the species as a whole, and that's the that occurs in the phenomenon of hybridization. And fortunately or not fortunately, Kant's principal example seems to be when a dark-skinned person and a white-skinned per- light-skinned person have a child. In that case, the child expresses the, the characteristics of both parents. That is to say, it's neither very dark nor very light, but somehow in between. And that's true of, of, of all kind of hybrids, as Kant understands them, in the plant world and the animal world. And it contrasts with something like when a blue-eyed person has a child with a, with a brown-eyed person, one doesn't find the same phenomenon. One doesn't find that the children are invariably, you know, hazel-eyed or, you know, kind of in between blue and brown. So he takes this to be a very significant distinction and wonders how it can be that there are these characteristics that are always passed along to offspring, like the shade of your skin, and yet are not universal to the species. And in order to account for that phenomenon, he comes up with the concept of race as he as he defines it. And, you know, the, the word race was sort of rolling around and was used in husbandry. I think it, it, it originally came from France, but it didn't have a, a concrete or definite meaning. It certainly didn't have a, a, a meaning that purported to be scientific. And that's sort of what Kant introduces, the idea of race as a scientific concept. How bizarre it is to look back on a man we consider today to be one of the greatest minds in the history of humanity, one of the greatest philosophers of mind, of being, of morality. And to say that he was the inventor of the scientific concept of race. It's shocking.
So what is, how does race explain the, the phenomenon of hybridization? Uh, Kant comes up with this rather amazing theory about, about human origins. And it goes something like this. We all began with the same basic set of, of genetic predispositions. He calls them chyma or, or, or germs and onlogin or disposition in the way the germs are arranged. And um, all human beings have a, have a common origin. They all start out with the same germs. And then in the earliest eras of, of human existence, human beings spread out over, the, over all, all of the continents. And at a time of great natural upheaval and volcanic eruption and all of these things that had recently been discovered and were very much in people's minds, I mean, how unstable the earth had been in earlier eras, Kant hypothesized that in order for human beings to be able to survive in multiple climates, and you know, they were they were given in advance certain characteristics that would elaborate themselves only under the right conditions. And that's how the races came about those human beings who happened to migrate to hot climates and remained there over many, many, many generations developed a darker skin, which all human beings initially had a, had a predisposition for, but only those human beings who lived in one hot climate over many, many generations actually came you know, developed. So the, he, he hypothesizes that this was true for people who migrated to northern areas. They, they remained white-skinned or became white-skinned. He wasn't sure what what the first human beings were like. At one point in his life, he thought that everybody was white initially, and then he changed his mind about that. And then for so-called red-skinned people and yellow-skinned people, you know, a similar scenario based on climactic adaptation. The further hypothesis was that once those qualities came out, they became fixed and, and no longer changed and were irreversible. And, and, and so the races are a reflection of this natural purposiveness that equipped us in, for this initial dispersion at a time when human intellect, human culture, human arts weren't sufficiently developed to allow us to survive under these extreme conditions, that nature sort of provided for this in, our, in our, you know, the initial stages of, of human existence. Uh, so that race now is is a sort of, you could almost say an atavism. I'm not sure that Kant thinks it has any lingering positive purpose, but it's, it's simply a kind of fact of life that one that one has to deal with. Can I ask about this process of calcification or or ossifying um, that happens at the earliest stages, and then suddenly, or when, once those those aspects that were inherent to to human in its earliest existence were then spread out among the different races as he sees them. Why this ossification and why this sudden need for a, a kind of teleological end to races where, where races are now fixed and hybridization can happen, but perhaps shouldn't happen? Uh, why, why that? Why, why is that even necessary to his anthropology? Well, it's not clear how necessary. This is another big question. I mean, to what extent is this a kind of crotchet of Kant's 
that he was able to fit in to his overriding grander concerns. And, you know, my own, just to put this on the side, I mean, my own, my own suspicion, or maybe it's my own wish, is that it's not the driver, that it's something of a, cro- of a crotchet, and that Kant's theory can be developed perfectly well without recourse to this racial theory. And indeed, his racial theory, you know, what's really, I think, disturbing about his racial theory is when it ceases to be merely about physical adaptation and begins to imply that some races are morally superior to other races, that skin color is correlated with, you know, mental ability and so on. I don't see any necessity for Kant having gone in that direction, and some good reasons, not least of which is his moral universalism, that would have pushed him the other way, and I think did continually push him in the other way, so that he never made this a kind of dogmatic presupposition, uh, nor even insist on its you know, absolute empirical validity. I think he was always a bit uneasy with the whole, the whole issue that he had been raised. But, but to answer your more immediate question, Kant is, is sort of preoccupied from a very early stage with how to reconcile mechanical causation and teleology. And he just simply doesn't think you can account for an awful lot of the phenomena that we, that are manifest, a human consciousness, the way we go about our lives, historical development in, in natural history, and so on. Um, he simply doesn't think that one can you know, encounter these things on, on strictly mechanical grounds. And sometimes this hunch of his led to very brilliant hypotheses. I'll give you one example. In his early days, in his early 30s, he wrote a book called Universal Natural History and Theory of the Heavens, in which he basically invented the idea of galaxies. He and Laplace, you know, sort of simultaneously came up with this idea. Laplace got all the credit because Kant's publisher went bankrupt. But the basic idea was that by working teleology and and mechanism together, Kant is able to explain the generation of of solar systems, which, you know, hadn't really been accounted for uh, until that time. So that would just be an example how his how his his urge or his his sort of intellectual need to to work to to work purposiveness and and mechanical causation together some way could often lead to very kind of very brilliant results. The race issue is one of those cases where this insistence on finding a way of reconciling teleology and, and mechanism or, or or reaching for some kind of purposive explanation did not yield the best results, at least in retrospect. Okay, great. That's an interesting point. And as I have studied Kant throughout my life, I've always found myself constantly surprised by the number of unexpected ideas that seem to have been invented or pioneered or in some way uh, stumbled across by Kant just sort of while he was doing something else. Right. Now, here in this case, though, would you say was Kant's sort of conception of race influential in a sort of ge- direct genetic sense in that other people read his ideas and picked up on them? Or is he more just an indicator of where thought and thinking about race was at the time? Well, I think he did have a rather decisive influence. Firstly, his the theory of biology that he elaborates more fully in the critique of judgment, which has really nothing to say about race, but which is anticipated in a slightly earlier essay called Philosophic Use of Teleological Principles. 
in which race is the central example, was extremely influential. And you know, many of Kant's sort of philosophic progeny, you know, like Fichte, like Schelling, Goethe in some ways, you know, kind of Hegel, uh, you know, sort of sees on the critique of judgment as really his, his, his magnum opus. So in that sense, a lot of people are primed to, see, to also look, look, I think, favorably on his, on his theory of race. Race was, was a sort of, as I say, a kind of inchoate idea. Uh, it didn't have a particularly scientific designation. It meant, you know, the races of dogs, like Dalmatians are a race, you know, collies are a race. Uh, it really was more of a kind of um, a term out of, out of, out of husbandry. And, um, and I think Kant's attention to, to, to phenomena like, like hybridization uh, is perhaps a, ref, a, a reflection of that. What he does is suggest that the idea of race, the concept of race, has a kind of determinate a priori uh, usefulness that can help us inquire more effectively and efficiently into actual natural phenomena. And so he gives it a kind of status, uh, a respectability, as well as a kind of um, yeah, a kind of determinate shape that it didn't have prior to Kant. And he was influential, although, you know, in, in, in mixed ways. And, um, you know, some of the people who were influenced by him went on to to, to genuinely noxious racist theories, or people who are associated him with, like like Gustav Minor, others like Blumenbach, had you know learned a lot from Kant, and then Kant in turn learned a lot from Blumenbach. But you know his ideas were you know extremely universalistic. He insisted on the you know the moral and intellectual quality of of all human beings everywhere. So he was able to advance a theory of a physical racial difference while emphatically denying that it had any implications for intellectual or, or, or moral life. And yet, I think there, was a, there must have been an underlying historical receptivity, especially where it was probably you know, economically advantageous to, you know, to, to seize on, uh, or politically advantageous, you know, as a justification for European colonialism and, and, and many other activities that were that were going on at the time. It's interesting that the first, the first people who really respectable people who talk about racial difference, they, would, they wouldn't have called it racial difference, but they would have, you know, particularly Negroes and their their moral and intellectual inferiority. You know, people like like Lord Kames and Hume, and one imagines that this kind of, with I, I can't make any direct connection. But that it was, you know, in Great Britain in particular, which ha- which depended so much on the slave trade, that these thoughts would have been very welcome, and therefore, one, you know, people might be a little bit more receptive to reports of the inferiority of Africans, and a little more skeptical of reports of their, of their equality and, and superiority, you know, for reasons that had nothing to do with 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 science strictly understood. I think I made it clear in the last episode that Hume is a philosopher whose work I have to swallow with a spoonful of sugar. His intuitions aren't my intuitions. Also, the most famous portrait of him is not one where he's wearing a wig, which most of them show, but rather this weird 
mauve velvet shower cap thingy of a sort that men in his day apparently wore around the house. I really don't like this hat. Anyhow, all that being said, we needed Hume. Hume tremendously pushed forward our model of human nature. We wouldn't have cognitive science like we know it today if it weren't for Hume. And although I think he was wrong more often than not about moral theory, nonetheless, utilitarianism wouldn't have been a thing without Hume. He's an important piece of the puzzle of who we are today. Yet, when I discovered that he was an inveterate racist, it didn't bother me all that much. Unless there be any doubt that Hume harbored racist sentiments, let me read you the text of the notorious sixth footnote of his essay of National Characters. I am apt to suspect the Negroes to be naturally inferior to the whites. There scarcely ever was a civilized nation of that complexion, nor even any individual eminent either in action or speculation. No ingenious manufacturers amongst them, no arts, no sciences. On the other hand, the most rude and barbarous of the whites, such as the ancient Germans, the present Tartars, have still something eminent about them. That's some class A racism right there. But as I say, I don't take the disappointment at these words all that hard. Self-interest was an important part of Hume's moral philosophy, after all. Hume didn't wish to be considered a relativist, and indeed he insisted that we cannot make excuses for individuals or societies of the past whose moral standards were cruel or reproachable. Regarding moral judgments about literature, and poetry in particular, in the essay Standards of Taste, Hume writes, Where ideas of morality and decency alter from one age to another, and where vicious manners are described, without being marked with the proper characters of blame and disapprobation. This must be allowed to disfigure the poem. Now, I don't blame Hume too much because I feel like a bit of hypocrisy was inevitable. Hume might want to reserve the right to judge past generations for their moral dullness, but now that he's being judged just as harshly in our own era, again, I don't feel all that shocked. His working principle that a priori moral judgments are impossible will lead to just this sort of self-incrimination. Kant, on the other hand, doesn't get off so easily with me. He insists on a priori moral principles. And he demands the utmost scrupulousness in their application. I'm willing to forgive Kant for being all too human, but it does bother me that he approves of the argument that black slaves ought not to be set free in the essay on the use of teleological principles in philosophy and namely because they cannot motivate themselves to work, even if they work hard, when they are told to do it. I think it's interesting that Kant becomes more publicly insistent on defending the rights of non-European peoples and their moral and political equality at precisely the point where, after the French Revolution, Britain has become a major major darling of of the political reaction in Germany. I suspect that that part of the reason, one of the reasons that Kant in the final decade of his life in the 1790s, when he was fighting off a kind of backlash in Prussia against the French Revolution, uh, led by people who uh, were enamored of Burke and Burkean notions of that whatever whatever traditions were at hand were you know were there for a good reason. Mm. Um, that as Kant turned against that way of thinking, and he also 
turned against Great Britain as a force for progress, which he had always deemed it to be. And, and I think that went together with his increasing vehemence in his political writings, such as perpetual peace against the slave trade. So that's just one, not pushback is not the right word, but at least um, let's go back in time, though, and, and talk about what you've mm-hmm. described as his, as perhaps just a, a crotchet of his, that is to say, what was, what can you possibly imagine was his motivation? Was it simply an admiration for British ways of thinking then? Yeah, no, I wouldn't want to suggest that, that that's all it was. But I mean, Comte was a great systematizer. He always liked to see things in patterns, preferably patterns of four. <laughs> <You> know, <laughs> um, and, um, you know, for races, for colors, for humors. I mean, you know, there, there is a certain insistent tendency in Kant, which he sometimes himself makes fun of, you know, what he sometimes, what he sometimes calls, you know, the, and, and seeing patterns where maybe they aren't really there. He calls it, you know, seeing the Holy Family in a pane of frosted glass, you mm. know, you know, if you really want to see a pattern, you'll see it, whether it's, you know, whether it's there or not. And I think he, he recognized that and tries to fight against it. Uh, I mean, it, it might just be from hindsight now. We know what has happened. We know the, the progress of, of history from his time to our time. And so one looks back, and of course, it might not be fair to Kant, but but why those, why even have a moral quality of racial differences and, and the moral characters of different races at all in his time? He could have simply stuck with uh, physical traits, that is, you know, visibly physical traits. The way Blumenbach did. Yeah. You know, ab- absolutely. And I think the story there goes back to even his earliest writings, and I include the writings that he did when he in his in his in his twenties, uh, way before he discovered Rousseau, way before you know the critical philosophy, because um, this is a man who was who was philosophically active, um, and he has a core insight very early on that I don't think he ever deviates from, which is that on the one hand, mind is irreducible to matter. I mean, he, he, he really never swerves from that position, that the very concept of matter rules out thinking. Um, so that, that suggests a kind, of, a kind of dualism, you know, similar to Descartes or maybe in a different sense, Spinoza. On the other hand, he's also convinced that human consciousness is irrevocably bound up with our embodiment and that we couldn't think at all the way we do. We couldn't be conscious of ourselves without the resistance of matter and without a kind of interactive presence in the world that, in a way, we express our aliveness and we, we become conscious of ourselves as alive insofar as our mental state changes in ways, some of which ways we can control, some of which we can't control. And it's the interaction of that, it's the contrast between those two moments that, that sort of constitutes human consciousness itself. And it's that worldliness of human beings that Kant, I think, insists on from, from his, his very first writing. So how does that translate into, <laughs> into, into moral, moral and intellectual differences? Well, in, in this again, this universal natural history and theory of the heavens, he he speculates. He knows that he can't shore this up with empirical evidence, but he provides a kind of interplanetary bestiary in which he speculates. He's trying to explain why human beings have such a hard time doing the right thing, and his explanation. I mean, this sounds very very bizarre, but but this is Kant. 
His explanation is that Earth is midway between the Sun and the outer planets, and that the creatures, the intelligent creatures who inhabit, say, Mercury, have much a much denser matter that they're constituted by, and the and the intelligent beings who inhabit, say, Jupiter, are made of very rarefied matter, and and whereas the the Jupiterians are able to think very quickly, and um, and sort of contemplate the heavens effortlessly, and the Mercurians are sunk in a kind of slug-like stupor because of the thickness of their fibers and how difficult it is for them to think. Um, man, he says, is in a difficult midpoint where where you know thinking for us. And, and, and realizing the end for which we're created, which at this point he thinks is contemplation of the, of the heavens, um, the vocation he had set himself, um, is made difficult by the fact that we are, that our matter is not fine enough to make it easy, as with as with the, the people of Jupiter, but 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 not so dense that it isn't our fault if we fail. And so he sort of works together moral culpability, mental ability, and physical makeup in a, a kind of grand grand cosmic scenario. And I think it suggests a kind of ongoing temptation on his part to think about the interrelationship of our material and our mental and moral capacities as as as, as at least potentially one of gradations. But it's one that, that I think goes to the heart of some of his deepest philosophic preoccupations which run through the first critique and, and beyond, which is, is which is how to understand human embodiment. And um, so in that sense, I think race is a is an ongoing temptation, or, or this kind of racial, moral, intellectual differentiation is a temptation for Kant because it fits so well with some of his other preoccupations. Near the beginning of our conversation, you raised an interesting point, which I wanted to come circle back to about the role of autonomy and mm-hmm. Kant's larger sort of moral project. Um, maybe you could say a little bit about what that moral project is, um, a little bit about the role autonomy plays in that, and then how you think autonomy and race, especially thinking about the modern world, how autonomy and race might play together to create either a moral evil or an opportunity for a moral good. Um, well, I guess I'm I, I'm committed enough to the idea of, of moral autonomy uh, to think that it you know that it's I mean I think rightly understood it's it's a cause for the good, uh, but it does give rise to certain temptations I'll call them which which then have to be resisted that which don't follow necessarily from the principle of autonomy but that do solve or or appear to solve certain problems to which the principle of autonomy gives rise. So what is the principle of autonomy? I mean, briefly, it is, Kant claims, the foundation of all ordinary moral common sense once it begins to think clearly about its own ground groundwork. Um, and the idea here is 
bringing together two seemingly disparate ideas. On the one hand, freedom. All morality seems to presuppose human freedom. Because if you're not free, how can you be blamed for being immoral? I mean, in simple terms. You know, you, if, if, we, if we're determined, we can't be held accountable. On the other hand, morality, ordinary moral common sense tells us that morality is also about laws, principles. Thou shalt and thou shalt not. Things you know that one doesn't isn't to do under any circumstances, just because it would be wrong, or things which one must do under all circumstances, just because it's the right thing to do. And how do you put together those two ideas: freedom on the one hand, and law commanding categorical principle on the other? Uh, and autonomy is the way to solve that problem. Because what it basically says is the moral law is the law that we give ourselves as rational beings when we think of ourselves as members of what he calls a kingdom of ends. That is to say, a community of rational, other rational beings, all of whom shape their action in such a way that it allows for the freedom of every other member of that community. And that idea of autonomy has a kind of internal dimension. When I ask myself, you know, is it okay to lie under this particular circumstance? You know, I think of myself as a member of a community where everybody operated on that principle, and I see that that really is not a world that could either could exist or that I could will to be part of. That's the kind of internal side. And the external side is what Kant calls the concept or the idea of a republic, which is a political community in which Human beings regulate themselves so that their external freedom is maximized relative to the like freedom of every other member. And this is where Kant becomes a staunch supporter, I think, of what we would call you know, liberal democracy or democratic order or constitutional republicanism, uh, all of these sort of more recent terms that Kant's concept of autonomy can easily be brought to bear in support of. Um, so those are, the, you know, those are the good things about autonomy. And it also establishes, I think, on a pretty firm basis, the why of human rights. Because why do human beings have dignity? Why do they deserve, you know, equal respect? Um, you know, the, the traditional biblical answer would be perhaps that they're because they're made in the image of God. But that's a, that's a matter of revelation. It's not a matter of reason. And what Kant supplies is a rational argument for human dignity, namely what distinguishes a human being from every other creature on, that we know of is that we are free to obey the moral law and, and self-legislating um, at the same time. And so it's our moral capacity, it's our, it's our, it's our capacity to be, to be morally accountable that, that, that grounds our, our dignity. Okay, so Kant's characteristics by which he distinguishes races or the characteristics that he thinks are relative for drawing racial distinctions don't interact with the characteristics that he thinks uh, are necessary to delineate human beings as uh, moral beings and worthy of dignity and, and respect in that sense. In other words, He's drawing the racial lines divide up humanity, but humanity is still united in these fundamental ways that demand uh, treatment with dignity. So at no point is he using or providing the material with which someone could use race to chop up 
the human race into less and more dignified groups? Or am I am I going too far there? There is the the, the pragmatic question that you that, that is um, at the latter part of your essay, yeah. namely that uh, it, it's not so much about the moral character of of any human being. All do, human beings, to some degree or another, are morally culpable, morally responsible for their own character, but. Uh, it might be that some have have a higher capacity for reasoning reasoning at a moral level, and therefore they they are even more responsible for using that advantage that they have. Is that right? Am I reading your text right? Yeah. No. I mean, that's that's the way I've tried to make sense of what Kant was doing pedagogically when he teaches these young people. Uh, he's teaching these, this course on anthropology for almost fifty times to young men who are maybe 15 or 16 years old. And he's trying to teach them how to be worldly in a morally informed sense. So what what possible good could it do to be telling them at the same time that there are these, you know, racial differences that have that have moral and intellectual implications? You know, the only thing that, you know, the, the most innocuous explanation I can come up with, we, we, we all have to we're all endowed with different strengths and weaknesses, we all have to take responsibility for making the best of what we've been given. And uh, if you've been given more, then, you know, more is expected. And that, that's, the, that's the spirit in which, he, in which he addresses these young men. He doesn't expect them to become, you know, planters in the Bahamas. He's expecting them to become functionaries in Prussia. Um, so I think that the, at least the immediate effect he was hoping to 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 have was to sort of instill in them a sense of you know you've been blessed <laughs> you know so you know, to those who much is given much is expected um, uh, I you know that's that's the best sense that I can that I can make of why he would find this why, why this would be a morally useful lesson for these young people it's interesting that he doesn't talk about race he, he seems to have felt it was a more and more important publicly to emphasize moral moral equality. What extent you mentioned this very briefly when you were talking about uh, teleological thinking and his uh, and Kant's use of Aristotelian older Aristotelian concepts, but to what extent do we have access to natural kinds in, in Kant's philosophy? Well, yeah, so that's a really that's a really great question, and I I really want to contrast um, Kant with Aristotle. Um, after the Baconian scientific revolution, the, the Aristotelian appeal to Kant seems to be you know dead in the water. Because the the basis of modern science, as ba- as Bacon and, uh, and and Descartes and others set it out, is is sort of premised on a um, a model of mechanical causality and homogeneous matter and homogeneous forces that can be measured in certain predictable ways, that seems to leave no room for natural kinds as anything other than a kind of fantastic projection on our part. Now, this, of course, le- you know, <laughs> leads to great difficulties when one tries to account for something like like the human mind, which seems to have a kind of... So I guess what, what Aristotle was perfectly comfortable asserting was that there are natural holes, that, that the cosmos is made up of heterogeneous kinds of things that have a kind of necessity 
that we grasp immediately through perception. And this, you know, Aristotelian doctrine, which I think in itself is very complex, had a kind of simplified, kind of more ossified, reified form that it assumed in, 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 in scholastic biology that, uh, and physics, which early modern science, you know, rose up in revolt against. So then the question is, well, how do you then deal with the fact, seeming fact that there are, there are holes in our experience, that things, what takes hold is the idea that the new, the new kind of hole from which we can take our bearings is the wholeness of consciousness. Um, now this doesn't, this just doesn't in, in and of itself tie in with, with Kant's own conception of, of race and species, except in this sense that he's committed to the view, and it's not just committed, he has good arguments in favor of the view, that we have no knowledge of the basic essences of, of things, you know, the things in themselves and what they, what they are in themselves and apart from our perception of them. And therefore, he really has, doesn't, you know, he can't make the assertion that Aristotle makes, that we simply recognize natural kinds, you know, just sort of upfront uh, and prima facie. Instead, he has a kind of workaround way of accounting for natural kinds, which I, I guess I sketched a little bit, touched on a little bit earlier, which is on the one hand, there's a kind of empirical touchstone. A kind exists where several, several creatures can reproduce fertile offspring, but also that the, the offspring that they produce bear some kind of necessary likeness to their, their parents. And Kant understands this less in terms of what it is to be a dog, you know, the essence of doghood <laughs> in some platonic sense, than as a set of rules that are somehow implanted and transplanted from generation to generation, which sets out a kind of, uh, yeah, a kind of template or schema that organizes the uh, the creation or the formation of a new of a new living being. All of these phenomena are very mysterious, ultimately for Kant and for for his contemporaries. And I I dare say they're they're still somewhat mysterious for us, despite our you know breakthrough in genetics and and DNA and so on. But we also um, never really touched on the difference between monogeneticism and polygeneticism and the kind of debate that was going on around the time that Kant began to work on um, race uh, and why Kant found polygeneticism to be a, an abhorrent concept. Yeah, well, I guess, I mean, on the one hand, the reasons that he gives in his, in his published essays are, are the following. Firstly, that we really can't give an account of or an organic being arising from a non-organic being. And we can't, and we have to presuppose a common germ. You know, Kant is, is highly resistant to the idea of Darwin, of what we, what we now call Darwinian evolution. But what he's absolutely insistent on is that, that the, initially there would, there would have to have been one organic form, one kind of ur-organic form or seed out of which all subsequent life emerged. That you could never have life emerging from from the, the from the non-living from dead matter and you know he has complicated reasons for arguing that but that's that's so that's part of the story and then the second part of the story is that he thinks because this germ this this species endowment 
is is sort of bound up with the way in which members of two sexes come together and make a single being out of two. And he's he's very committed to the idea of epigenesis, which means that the generation is the product of both parents as opposed to a then you know, there was one primal man and, and all other all subsequent human beings are the are the descendants of that one man. And each time there is a copulation or a generation, this, that, that, this, the seed, you know, unfolds. It, it just unfolds another layer. But, but all human beings are away encapsulated into, into one. Or alternatively, that there was one f- female progenitor of all of humanity. And we're all sort of nestled like, or at least women are nestled like inside of us like Russian dolls, you know. And each generation opens up a new, a new layer. Uh, and, and, you know, with li- almost limitless numbers of little Russian dolls. Now, this, this seemed to be the only way to account for life with, without, and, and without, you know, A, violating the rules of, of mechanical causation on the one hand, and on the other, it seemed to be in keeping with you know, religious sensibilities, which insisted that, that, you know, that God was the ultimate source of creation. And so on this view, God had implanted these, these, these primal encapsulated, eggs or sperm in the first human beings and then they had they just proceeded to unfold with each successive generation. Kant would have none of that theory. He preferred the epigenetic theory which simply noted for starters that very often children inherit characteristics of each parent which seemed to make it very unlikely that all of your all of your genetic makeup came from either one parent or the other. And the uh, the other mode of explaining why, you know, if the, if the seed of life came wholly from the father, why the child often inherited characteristics of the mother. There were all kinds of strange explanations. Well, the mother had a bad dream, and that affected the fetus. Or, I mean, there were just there were very very strange attempts to to give an account. I mean, strange in our eyes of how it could be that the phenomenon we see through the re- reproductive process of animals and plants and human beings could, could be explained given, given current scientific resources and the need to, to, to make one's peace with, with sort of religious sensibilities. Kant thinks that if you try to account for the, these differences that always reproduce themselves, which could suggest separate species, then you can't account for the fact that members of a white race and the, and, 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 the, and the brown race can produce fertile offspring. Because, you know, that just, it just boggles the mind, he thought, to imagine that you could have creatures originating with, from different germs thousands of miles apart that miraculously, as it were, could, could interbreed. And this just created more mysteries than it resolved. Because if members of two species could interbreed, then why not a walrus and a, you know, and, and a, and a, and a giraffe? You know? I mean, <laughs> yeah. it would make just as much sense. So for him, it, it, it multiplied mysteries rather than, than clarifying phenomena. So he had a very good scientific reason, as he, as he understood it, for rejecting polygenesis. And I think he also probably you know, had moral leanings that way. Although it has to be said that there were Foster, for example, who was a firm adherent to the polygenetic theory that that Africans had arisen separately from separate ancestors, uh, and there was no common Adam, in other words, that that was actually a position uh, more conducive to humane relations among human beings than the opposite, as, as, you know, as much as that might 
seem to fly in the face of common sense. So you could be a polygeneticist and be adamantly opposed to the slave trade. You could be a monogeneticist and be an adherent and upholder of the slave trade. The way that we framed this this season is with the with the question race is that a thing? So I would like you in a sort of enlightening round fashion. <laughs> okay. As unfair as that is, the you know constraints produce creativity. I want you to tell me is race a thing? Okay, well race race in consent is not a thing. You know, his his account has been superseded by all kinds of new discoveries and you know evolutionary theory and so on. So certainly race in the technical sense that Kant meant, meant it to be a thing is not a thing. You know, the broader sense, I think I think race is is for the most part a moral, a moral and political category and and has to be judged on those terms. We we are constantly making new genetic discoveries that sometimes drive us in one direction or another. But I think the human being is such a a complex and mysterious creature that to make any 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 pronouncements that sound even tentatively definitive on this is is foolish and to the extent that race has been i think an extremely destructive concept politically and morally you know that that version of a concept of race should be steadfastly resisted okay let me throw one more uh, one more at you then is kant um, in terms of that type of racism is Kant part of the solution or part of the problem? Well, I think that the most interesting and useful and philosophically creative and living in Kant is definitely part of the solution, albeit in a, sometimes in a complicated way. That is to say, I think that Kant's defense of morality in terms of a kind of strenuous and absolute human freedom and the dualism that it, it demands produces a countervailing need to, 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 for reconciliation, to, to bring freedom and nature back together. And in Kant's later work, this points toward a philosophy of history, which he never himself fully articulates or is willing to stand behind on strictly philosophic grounds, but that raises certain dangers because it opens up an invitation to, to to for edifying narratives, which may or may not be grounded in factual evidence of the best and most reliable sort. And so, one example would be the you know the progression of which really did take hold in Germany, especially, but not only Germany, a taxonomy of the races. It also added to a kind of scientific anti-Semitism which you know, Kant is not strictly responsible for, but which certain patterns of thinking that he uh, opens up were seized on by others and, and pushed in a direction that I think he would have personally resisted, but that in a way he, he made, in a certain sense, made possible. So I would say that the, the danger 
the, the, the beauty of Kantian moralism is it's his insistence on um, a, a, a kind of universal morality that's based on a, a common sense understanding of moral praise and blame and human freedom and human possibility, which is both attractive in its own right and politically and morally powerful. But the, the downside is that it, it can lead to fanciful efforts to, you know, to see patterns in history or between races or between religions, which may, you know, wander quite significantly from, from the clear flat facts on the ground. And that that may be simply one of the dangers that kind of lurk within a liberal, a broadly liberal Kantian moral framework, uh, which are not necessitated by that framework, but are enabled or made possible by it. And yet, I would claim resistible by the by the by the sa- the very same tools that that open it up, and so I think for 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 Kantians who want to make the best of Kant in in current circumstances, and I think one of the beauties of Kant is the degree to which his thought is 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 remarkably far sighted. I think he foresees in a way the problems of of national national pluralism. And resolves them before the fact. I think he he sees ahead of time certain problems of inequality and civic dignity. I think he he, he anticipates and to some extent provides tools for resolving them that haven't been fully tapped. So I see Kant much more as a as a resource that has not been fully tapped as as a kind of guilty party in whatever modernity has unleashed um, that has that has gone you know, tragically wrong. There's a phrase I really liked from Susan Schell, and she brings up Kant describing himself uh, and a tendency that he has to see the holy family in a pane of frosted glass. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Right. And so the idea there is that there that he's sort of seeing and reflecting on and discussing patterns that may or may not actually be there. And in fact, he seems to have kind of an understanding that a lot of the patterns he sees and a lot of the sort of systematic analysis that he does in his philosophy is probably more or less a figment of his imagination. Hmm. But that is interestingly the most important contribution that I think Kant brings to the 21st century. Um, Yeah, no, I absolutely see where you're going. And, um, I think that adds a lot more complexity 
to an already fairly complex episode, one more complex than maybe any of the other ones we've done so far. Um, I always tell my writing students not to reveal the cards they have in their hands too much. That is to say, I don't like procedural talk in academic writing that much. A little bit goes a long way. But in this case, I'm going to swerve away from the form that we have established in our episodes. And I'm going to say that we have now nearly laid the philosophical groundwork as much as we possibly can before we move on to another realm of investigation in the matter of our whole series, Race, Is That a Thing? So we think this is the right point in our series to invite you, our listeners, to offer us your thoughts in your own voices. If you've had any questions, ideas, observations, or reservations about our series so far, we would love it if you recorded a voice memo and sent it to us by email to gowan at a million little gods.com. That's gowan, my last name, G-O-W-E-N at a million little gods.com. We'll compile some of them and then put them on the air in an upcoming episode. A Million Little Gods is produced at the University of Hamburg. Writing and production are by Ben Federson and me. This show was edited by Kai Dyke and me. Kai, if you collect any more elective credits, you can send them in for a new pair of headphones. Our other student producers are Julia Appa, Leonie Bauer, Marin Christoph, Pat Nels, and Anna Pejic. You can reach us online at amillionlittlegods.com. You can find us on Facebook at facebook.com slash amillionlittlegods. And you can find us on Twitter. Our handle is at amlgpodcast. Be sure to listen in two weeks for a set of footcasts on this episode. And then in four weeks, we will return with a new episode, episode eight, The Holy Family in a Pane of Frosted Glass.